will. We'll get right into the message. Preacher asked me to do Q&A tonight. He, th he thinks that is important, and I agree with him. So I'm going to do my best after the message to field whatever questions you have. But my hope and prayer is it's not necessarily me answering questions, but all of us having a great conversation and learning uh, from each other. But this evening, I want to tell you I'm very burdened with the message. Um, I've got a lot to cover, um, and I promise to do so in a timely fashion. But I will say that this evening, what we're going to be talking about is Bible prophecy. Now, there are many people that believe that Christians are out of line a little bit when they start talking about prophecy. They'll quote that verse that Jesus quoted, I believe, in Matthew 24, when Jesus said that no man knows the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man returns. And they'll say, because of that, we really shouldn't talk about the end times. We really shouldn't study that. But here's the problem with that way of thinking. Over 28% of the Bible is prophecy. And so if you say that we're not going to talk about prophecy and we're not going to study prophecy, well, you're doing away with over a quarter of the Word of God. And you can see why that is problematic. And so if I had to title today's message, it would be God Called It. God Called It. Many things in the Bible God called, and many things we are seeing today God called. As a matter of fact, when God says something, you can just about guarantee it's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. You can cash the check. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so I want to look not only with some things that God called regarding the end times, but specifically with the nation of Israel. So for many of you that have been in my Sunday school class, this will mean a little bit more to you, but I hope that it's uh, important for all of us, or I hope that we all get something out of it. So what are some things that God called? What are some things that we know that God called? Well, regarding Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, the Bible calls exactly when Christ would come in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 gives us an exact description of the exact timeline in which Christ would come, in which the Jewish Messiah would return. God called the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He called it. He called the fact that Jesus Christ would be born in a town called Bethlehem. He called many aspects of his ministry and his teaching. He called with precision accuracy, precision accuracy details of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a colt. He called many details regarding his death and his crucifixion. Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm chapter 22, many places giving exact precise details. How that his garments, they would cast lots upon his garments. How that his bones would be out of joint. How that his heart would be like wax and is melted into the midst of his bowels. How that he would be beaten and smitten. How that there would be, his beard would be pulled out of his face. How there would be stripes upon his back and by his stripes we are healed. 
many precise details. You need to understand that our God is a God of details. He is a precise God. And thanks be to God, it was prophesied in Psalm chapter 16 of that the fact that God would not suffer His Holy One to see corruption. And indeed, Jesus did come forth from the grave. Over 300 different prophecies fulfilled just in the life of Christ. Just while He was here on His first time coming as the Messiah. Not including the second time He's going to come. 300 fulfilled prophecies. But we also see that God prophesied many, many details regarding the nation of Israel. We don't have time to talk about all of it, but we'd read in the book of Jeremiah precise details about how Israel would fall into the captivity of the Babylonians. We would read in Daniel precise details about how the transition would take place from the Babylonians to the Persians and then the Greeks. We would read in precise details about how uh, and about uh, the 500 era BC how the times of the Gentiles would begin in Israel and in Jerusalem and that times of the Gentiles have not been fulfilled until 2500 years later but God called it he called the fact that Gentiles would take over Jerusalem he called the fact not only that Gentiles would take over Jerusalem but that he would bring his people home. He called it. He called it. As a matter of fact, every single Old Testament prophet, with the exception of Jonah, made mention of the fact that God would bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. Some of my favorite examples, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out, uh, uh, up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 14 says, I will be found of you, saith the Lord. I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. And then one chapter later, the Bible says, For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. God called it. He called it. He called that God, that, that he would draw his people back to the land of Israel. And so what do we need to understand about this? Around 597 B.C., we read in the Bible, and we know it to be true, that the land of Israel fell into Babylonian captivity. We would read about that in the first few chapters of the book of Daniel. After that captivity, they were spread all over the Mediterranean world. They were spread all over Persia, all over what was Babylon in that day. And many did not come home to Israel even after 
the Babylonian captivity ended. You see, because there are some people that would like to say that after the Babylonian captivity was over, that that is what Jeremiah 29, 14 is talking about. That is what Jeremiah 30 is talking about. That is what Ezekiel is talking about. But that's not true. Because the vast majority of the Jewish people actually did not return to the land of Israel. Some did. We would read about those that lived in the life of Christ. But we know that an another example is on the day of Pentecost. Remember the day of Pentecost, how all of the Jews came to celebrate the Passover and, the, and the, the Spirit of God had to come, the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in many tongues. Why? Because they were from all over the world. You understand that the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the, God's drawing of His people back home had not been fulfilled until very recently. And so what happened? In 70 AD, the Jewish revolt happened. And there was a great revolt in Jerusalem and in Israel. And the temple was destroyed. And so I'd like to turn now to Matthew chapter 24. And that'll be our main text tonight. And it's funny, because we know that in 70 AD, that the Jewish temple that stood in Jerusalem was destroyed. But you know what's interesting about that? God called it. He called it. He called it about 40 years earlier when Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And we would read in verse number 2, Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He is teaching his Jewish disciples that the temple will be destroyed. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. And after that happened, all of the Jews in the land of Israel were scattered once again all over the world. And so we have the great displacement, if you will. The Jews all over the world were scattered and for 2,000 years they suffered varying levels of persecution. They suffered varying levels of persecutions from the Muslims, varying levels of persecution from the Roman Catholic Crusaders. All over the world for 2,000 years they would be displaced and they would be persecuted and that would culminate in the 1940s in an event that we know as the Holocaust. Do we all know about the Holocaust? How that in Hitler's Nazi Germany, Hitler set forth to enact mass genocide and he exterminated one-third of the world's Jewish population. Six million Jews died. Now here's what's interesting. Earlier we read out of Ezekiel chapter 37. Now some people would not agree with me on this. I want to clarify. This is a teaching moment. I just want you to think about this. Ezekiel chapter 37 is the valley of dead dry bones. We understand that. That great story of the valley of dead dry bones. And the Bible says there was a loud noise and the Spirit of God came upon that valley of dead dry bones. And we would read how God would raise up that valley. He would give that valley new life. He would breathe life into that valley and that they would be raised up from the ashes. Now I personally believe that is a picture of the Holocaust. Because if you go and you look at pictures of the Holocaust, you'll read how these literally 
human beings have been mistreated and malnourished to the point that they literally look like skeletons. I hope you've seen the pictures. And there's bodies piled upon one another. And there are human beings that were corralled into rail cars like skeletons. And they were unable to even eat because of the intense pain that they were in. And we understand how Hitler exterminated them. He marched them into the gas chambers, marched them into the ovens, and the smoke would be rising. And the Bible says that out of the ashes I will raise you up. And then what did we read in verse 12 through 14? I will give you back your land. I will restore you. I will raise you up and I will put you in the land that I promised you in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. And what happened in 1948? The nation of Israel was born. The Jewish people came back to their homeland. And President Harry Truman declared that we will recognize the Jewish state as this nation of Israel. 52 Muslim nations in uh, the Middle East. Uh, 32 of which are, uh, are Arab nations. One Jewish state. Israel. One Jewish state. And so it would seem to me like God kept his promise. And now because of recent events we see that more Jews are coming to Israel than at any other time in the last 75 years. How interesting is that? And so God called it. God called it. But here's what I want to look at in Matthew chapter 24 and what I think we need to understand about the signs of the end of the times. First of all, we need to understand that all of the things that God or Jesus teaches us is through the lens of the Jews. It is an error to take Matthew 24 and to take a Gentile in the church age and have that kind of a mindset and try to understand what he's talking about. Now here's what I mean by that. Look with me at verse number 3. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes, and divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. That verse has stripped many a people up. You must understand this through a Jewish context. 
Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. And let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on his housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now pause. I heard growing up that we are in the last days. I heard preachers preach, we are in the end times. Why? Because there's famines and there's pestilences and there's disease and there's wars and rumors of wars. And I always thought, you know what? 6,000 years of human history, hasn't there always been war? Hasn't there always been disease? Hasn't there always been famine? And yet you're crying wolf because there's wars and famine and disease? That makes no sense to me. And they would cite this verse. But think about this. For the last 75 years, the Jews have inhabited Israel. And Jesus is teaching his Jewish disciples at the temple in a Jewish context. How do we know it's a Jewish context? Because it says in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. What, where is the abomination of desolation? Anybody? The temple. That means there will be a Jewish temple. What else do we read? He says, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Now wait a minute. If this is a message to the Gentile church of Jesus Christ in the church age, for all of the church to understand, that verse makes no sense. You see, here in America... We have front porches and back porches. Anyone got a front or a back porch? I do. A little bit, little patio, got a grill on it. Real nice. But you know where I don't go to fellowship? I don't go to my rooftop. Now go to Jerusalem. You won't see any front porches or back porches. You'll see lots of rooftops. Flat, square, Middle Eastern looking roofs. Where that is where they commune, that is where they fellowship, that is where they have their backyard barbecues, quote unquote. What else do we read? It says, pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Neither on the Sabbath day. You know something? The Sabbath day is held by the Jews today. I can attest. I had to ride an elevator on Saturdays that went up one floor at a time because I couldn't push a button because that would be breaking Sabbath rules. And so this is a Jewish context. Jesus is teaching to his Jewish disciples about, his, uh, uh, about what will happen to the Jewish people in the end times that are living in Jerusalem in the book of Matthew, which is the gospel of the kingdom written to the Jewish people. Okay? 
Are you with me? So tell me something. The end days, Jesus is describing what will happen to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And before 75 years ago, there were no Jewish people in Jerusalem. Actually, before around 62 years ago. It would be in 1967, 60-ish years ago, if you will. 1967 is when the Jews took over Jerusalem. Now Luke chapter 21 tells us, Luke chapter 21 tells us that the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Luke 21 tells us, Jesus tells us that the Jews will be carried away by way of the sword and, and that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles. And we would understand that. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, uh, all of the different Ottoman Empire and, and the Arab Empires and the Crusaders and the British Empire until 1967 when the Jews for the first time in 2,500 years had complete and total control over Jerusalem. But we're not in the end times and we shouldn't talk about the end times. I don't think so. I don't buy that. And so what, do we, what else do we need to understand? We need to understand that there must be a temple for the abomination of desolation to take place. Now, if we read in 2 Thessalonians, and I'm going to be in chapter number 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to a Gentile church. He is writing to a Gentile church in the church age, not teaching Jesus' Jewish disciples, but writing to a Gentile church in the church age, speaking about the end times. And he says in verse number 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, the end times, or the day of Christ, except there come a falling away first. We're seeing that. And that man of sin, that is the Antichrist, be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth, where? In the temple. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. So that he as God sitteth in the temple, showing himself that he is God. So what does the Bible teach? We understand from the book of Revelation. We understand that the tribulation will begin when the Antichrist makes a covenant with the Jewish people. And he will break that covenant three and a half years into the tribulation and that will spawn the, great, the, the, the even more severe three and a half years. And then we know Christ will come back on a white horse and I'm going to be with him to rule and reign for a thousand years. But that is what the Bible is teaching. Now, there must be a temple for this to happen, but there's not a temple today. However, the plans have been drawn. 20 years ago, if you were a member of the Jewish parliament, you would have been called crazy to talk about the building of the temple. And so, how do we reconcile this information? Well, I believe the answer would be in Ezekiel chapter 38. If you would turn there, and we'll, this will be the last place we turn. Ezekiel chapter 38. 
Now in Ezekiel chapter 38, we would read of the battle of Gog and Magog. Now let me pause for just a moment. Remember that Ezekiel chapter 37, if you subscribe to my interpretation, which you're not required to do, Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dead dry bones is the Holocaust. Okay, the Holocaust. God is raising up his people from the grave. Whether you subscribe to that idea or not, God did promise to put his people back into the land of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37. And then we get to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and that is talking about the battle of Gog and Magog, where a handful of great armies will come against the nation of Israel. And we would read it how God would supernaturally protect Israel from these great armies that will come against them. Now, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44 is all about the building of the temple. So you see, if the Bible is chronological, we have 1940s right here, which is the Holocaust. We have 1948, Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. God is bringing his people back to the land of Israel. We have Ezekiel 38 and 39, which has yet to happen, which is the battle of Gog and Magog, where all of these armies come together to destroy Israel. And then we have Ezekiel 40 through 44, which is the building of what we know as the third temple. Because the... Uh, very precise and exact details in Ezekiel 40 through 44 does not describe either of the first two temples. And the plans that have been drawn for the third temple in Jerusalem are going off of Ezekiel 40 through 44. Are you with me? And so, what do we read in Ezekiel 38? We read, verse number 2, Son of man... Set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horse, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Okay. And so we read how the armies of the world will come against, a handful of the armies of the world will come against Israel, and verse number four, God will put hooks in their jaws, which is a description of how he will supernaturally protect Israel from these armies. And we can continue to read in 38 and 39 about how God will continue to do that. Now, who is Gog and Magog? Boy, that's a question Bible students have been asking for ages. But here's what I believe and what many believe. It says, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech. Meshech is a type of Moscow. In fact, we understand that Magog, the land of Magog, is extreme north of Israel, which is Russia. Now that's interesting. The Bible seems to be prophesying that Russia will come against Israel. Now, all I intend to do this evening is to get you thinking, okay? 
the Bible in, seems to prophesy that Russia will come against Israel. Now, who are the other actors involved? Verse number five. The first word in verse number five, Persia. Who is Persia? Until 1935, what is modern-day Iran was called Persia. Persia's name changed to Iran in 1935. Who funds the Hamas and Hezbollah terrorists? It would be Iran. What is the nation in all the world that chants death to Israel the most? Iran. What is the nation that seeks to obtain a nuclear weapon to wipe Israel off the face of the map? Iran. So here we would read that Persia or Iran is in alliance with what, the, what seems to be Russia. And then we also read Ethiopia and Libya. Do you know where modern, where ISIS is today? Libya, Ethiopia. We've driven them out of other parts of the Middle East. Did you know that Hamas was inspired by ISIS? In fact, they waved ISIS flags on October 7th when they massacred 1,400 Jews, 1,500 Jews. And did you know that we're getting reports of ISIS being re-inspired because of Hamas? Interesting. I'm just hoping that we can think about this. And so here's what we're trying to get to. I don't know exactly what Ezekiel 38 and 39 means. I don't know exactly where it falls into God's timeline, but I do know it's in the Bible. And when God calls it, it happens. Now, I want to give four plausible scenarios very quickly of what this could possibly mean. What this could possibly mean. Number one, first of all, we know that the wars and what is going on in Israel today is not the battle of Gog and Magog. Why? Because we read that it would be the armies that come from the north and the fighting is in the south. We read that there would be no one that would stand to help Israel. And in fact, as of right now, to God be the glory, the United States is standing with the nation of Israel. We know that, okay? But we know that when this happens, we will not be standing with Israel. One of four reasons. One, uh, Israel crosses the line in Gaza according to the officials in the United States. And so the United States says, we're not going to help Israel anymore because you went too far in trying to annihilate Hamas. Number two, maybe just maybe between a war in Ukraine, a war in the Middle East, and an open border that America wakes up and says, we have enough fights of our own that we can't help you, Israel. Goodbye. We withdraw our support. Or number three, maybe, just maybe, Israel decides that the problem is too severe that they have to attack Iran. And when they attack Iran and all of these nations come together to retaliate, the force will be too great. And America says, this is your problem, Israel, not ours. I'm just giving you plausible scenarios here. My favorite option is that 
the Son of God will come in the clouds and we which are alive shall, shall be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. That would be my favorite situation here. And that is going to happen somewhere in here, make no mistake about it. So what are the lessons we need from all this? I threw a lot out there today and I know that. Some of you are accusing me right now of information overload. That's okay. That's all right. It's good for us. Okay? Here's what we need to understand. The Bible is explicitly clear, okay, that we, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians teach us, that we, the church of God, are not appointed to wrath. Revelation chapter 6 describes the tribulation period as the wrath of the Lamb. The last mention of the word church in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 3. And then in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 we read how we which are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are casting our crowns at the feet of our Savior. And then the tribulation happens. And we are nowhere to be mentioned. And then for whatever reason, the focus is back on the Jewish people and back on the nation of Israel, describing all of the events of the tribulation in the book of Revelation. My point is this, when all this boils over, we're not going to be here. And if the, if, if the Bible is right, and if God really called it, the day is coming very, very soon where I'm going to hear a shout. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so what do we need to understand? We need to understand very, very clearly, very clearly, that now, just as preachers told us many times, is the easiest time to ever convince anybody that the Word of God is true. This book is true from cover to cover. Period. End of story. Period. End of story. What else do we know? If we were to keep reading in 2 Thessalonians, Paul encouraged the church at Thessalonica to let not your heart be troubled. Why is it? Why is it that the Bible gives us insight to the future? Jesus told us in John chapter 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I come to prepare, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Why should we not fear? Why should we not fret when we see the things that we see going on in the world? Because I know the end of the story. And I am commanded to let not my heart be troubled. Why? Because the King of Kings is still on his throne. God was not taken by surprise. Why? Because, because I may not know the future, but I do know the one who holds the future in the palm of his hands. And the last thing that we must understand, we must understand, and then I'm done, is Christians, I talked briefly tonight about some political things. I talked briefly tonight about some economic things. And I talked briefly about some military things. But here's what I'm alarmed about. When I look at churches, when I listen to preaching, and when I listen to conversations from Christians, it seems like that's all we're talking about. 
Which side of the political aisle on this Israel issue are we on? What are the economic ramifications of the war in the Middle East? What is our military response to all that is going on? But I want to remind you what God calls us to do in Ephesians chapter number 6 and verse number 12. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. While the world is engaged in secular conversations, may we, the church of Jesus Christ, be engaged in spiritual conversations, in spiritual warfare. May we put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. May we shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and unsheath the sword of the Spirit. Why? Because we are the last hope to telling a lost and dying world that the King of Kings is still on His thrones, that Jesus Christ died on an old rugged cross for our sins, that He rose again, and that in Him we can have newness of life. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. Let our conversations be spiritual. Nothing more, nothing less. And that is what we're called to. And that is our our ought to be our heart's desire this evening. Father, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. I hope that we learned something today and that we were edified. And I just pray now that you would help all of us to not look at the things of this world, but to look to the word of God. Because it is the word of God that has the answers. We know that because you called it. We thank you for giving us peace in a time of trouble, and we ask now that you help us heed to the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.